it is my sincere pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker this afternoon, Cordell Carter. And Cordell has such a remarkable career and has led such a remarkable life of impact that I am going to read from my notes to make sure that I don't miss key things. So Cordell brings more than 20 years to his pursuit of a society and organizational cultures where everyone belongs and has equitable opportunities to thrive. He is currently the executive director of the Aspen Institute Socrates program, and he is the founding director of the Aspen Institute's project on belonging. He is also the founder of the Festival of the Diaspora, a Columbia-based convener of diasporic communities across the Americas. And before his current roles, he held leadership roles with TechTown, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Seattle Public Schools, the Business Roundtable, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, and the IBM Corporation, and on and on. I want to say that he is a regular fixture in Indiana, a friend to many organizations, well-known as a speaker on ethical use of technology, entrepreneurship and innovation, and of course, inclusion and belonging. Um, he's also an alum of the University of Notre Dame, so we claim him as a native son. Go Irish. Go Irish. Go Irish. Season's off to a good start. Yep. And so is our afternoon. Cordell? Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. How's everybody doing? Let's try that one more time. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to get myself settled here. It's an absolute pleasure to be back in Indiana. I'm here quite a bit. Um, mainly, I'm, I'm pulling hard for my my uh, rising senior daughter to at least consider an Indiana school. I uh, took her to um, my uh, alma mater, Notre Dame, recently for a tour. And uh, let, me, let me set the stage for you. Number one, she was born in my third year of law school at Notre Dame. My tax professor's wife delivered her. She delivered all the babies. Their Catholic was a lot of babies uh, my year uh, at Notre Dame. So she is essentially, I think, you know, a domer. So she has on her combat boots, her MC Hammer pants. She doesn't know what MC Hammer is, but she's wearing pants. Her her manga t-shirt and purple hair. And the tour guide, I'm looking at him like, hey, we're alums, you know, maybe lay out the football. He went straight in on a football weekend. I'm like, dude, did you not see your customer here? <laughs> Does she look like she's into football? <laughs> if I got been banned from watching football uh, because I would curse so much during the games. And so my wife got rid of cable and all of that like years ago. So I haven't watched a football game in a very long time. Anyhow, TMI, how are you all doing this morning? <laughs> great, great. So I, I am absolutely delighted to be here uh, for your convening. PLCs is what you all are, professional learning community. Uh, communities of practice, if you will. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in, in K-12, and uh, PLCs is, is how you move the, the needle. Um, you're looking at data, you say, okay, let's make a data-driven decision on how to change this thing that we want to change, and then you go about it. So I, I applaud you all for pulling this together. It's really hard to do across competitive enterprises, so I applaud you. That's, that's a Midwest thing, okay? That's a Midwest Midwest nice is real, okay? This is why I'm so excited that she's considering schools in the Midwest. So um, this topic of, of inclusive tech workforce, 
uh, is super important to me. Uh, I have seen a lot of things. I tell folks I'm, I'm much older than I look. Um, is you know, the melanin definitely helps. Like, don't hate, exfoliate. That's my new term. Um, and so I've seen the trends. I started my career with IBM. I came fresh out of Carnegie Mellon, and I was just all fired up to uh, do some things that you all never heard of. And that was transition from, from client-server environments. I'm sorry, from mainframes to client-server environments. So Fortran, all that stuff. I had to learn how to code that in 1999. Some of you weren't born in 1999, okay? And, and so that was my first project was with Tommy Thompson in Wisconsin. Remember Tommy Thompson? He was as insane in person as he appears on television. And, and uh, But he was doing some really interesting things with welfare to work, and that was my first foray into technology. Uh, besides the Atari and then doing the minor coding as a kid in the 80s, uh, you know, working with IBM and Deloitte, uh, that was that was my entree. It was right in Madison, Wisconsin, where I started my career. And to see where we are now, and to have a digital native in my home, um, is baffling. You know, normal coursework includes coding for her. I mean, she's been coding since she was five years old. It's just baffling to me. But that's where the world is. So this is the environment that we're in. It's shaped by innovations. It's shaped by this rapidly changing environment all the time. I had a lot of respect for folks in the private sector because you are, your competitive environment is unlike others because people are trying to eat your lunch every innovation cycle. An innovation cycle just gets smaller and smaller each cycle. The, so the innovation cycle itself is innovating. This is a baffling environment to be in, so you have to stay on your toes all the time. And so those of you all involved in talent uh, at either recruiting or upskilling, whatever you're doing, uh, your job is all the more challenging because of the environment that you're in. So let's spend some time talking about this environment that you're in. Um, so there are about 336 million people in the USA. Um, the thing on how you count. <laughs> so let's be clear about this, this is sense of data. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't account for uh, some other things that perhaps uh, many of us do. But every 15 seconds, we have a net replacement of a person. That's the deal, all right? Every 15 seconds. Um, and 336 million people. We have about 170 million people in the workforce. Okay, and that means actively engaged in either part-time work at a minimum, all right? 21 million of those 170 million are in the tech workforce. And this is everyone from IT support at the public library to your super duper $500,000 year coders at Facebook and, and Airbnb and Silicon Valley. And so mission 41K is, is focused on about 0.0002% of the total workforce. I think that's doable, personally. That's a very small number, 41,000. What does that really mean to a place like Indianapolis? Well, it's, it's game changing. And I must applaud you all again um, for 5.6% growth year over year. That's that's pretty impressive. You all may not be impressed by it, but I am. I travel a lot and everyone is saying the exact opposite. Maybe it's negative 5.6%. And they certainly don't have rooms like this. Even at the associations, they don't. Because people are so, they're so focused on poaching talent from each other that they don't see the big picture. All right? So I need you all to rise up because I'll be talking about some trends and then we'll go back down to to Indiana specifically. So with 3.8% unemployment, uh, basically if you're unemployed now, you're either 
differently abled where you don't want to work, that there are thousands of jobs available, thousands. Every year, there's a 100K, 100,000 job deficit in tech workers. That just, it keeps building, keeps building. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates with about 10 million open jobs. And just the tech sector, 10 million. Doesn't even factor into these other numbers I mentioned. So just your sector alone, you have that much unemployment. So if people want a job, it's there. Now they have to be upskilled. Um, I'm with a company called uh, Skillstar on their board, and they're an upskiller. Okay, so if it's AWS, if it's uh, if it's I don't know Salesforce, whatever it is, they have the time to work. CompTIA does it as well. But CompTIA, yeah, <laughs> shout out to CompTIA. Uh, and back there, they started that whole notion of upskilling. Um, so everyone is is leveraging your model. Bravo, CompTIA. Uh, and so, so there's a lot of factors going into this, but let's talk about some mega trends, if you will. And because uh, your your goal is to build a, a workforce that's inclusive, and I must say this, I'm not a professional diversity, equity, inclusion person. I showed that to my CEO three years ago when he asked me to launch the Belonging Project. He actually asked me to, to launch an external DNI program, and I said that's really interesting. Perhaps you should find a specialist because that's not what I do. He says, well. Um, I need your help because you build programs. So build us a program that actually fits what we do. And so my research, my landscape analysis indicated that DNI is um, that is not it's a strategy without an objective. Meaning, where are we going with this? Nixon started this in '66 with a, a census of federal contractors, and from that census, become the annual compliance exercise. It's gotten a little more strategic, but I think where the puck is going, to borrow a hockey, a hockey term, is this notion that um, we're, we're all out to build a society where everyone belongs. Like, so that's number one. You belong. Everybody is from you belong. Bravo. Now, thriving is something different because thriving for you is different from maybe at a different starting points, different inputs, different experiences. And so the very best for you may be mid-level. The very best for me may be CEO. The point is we have an opportunity, multiple opportunities to thrive, okay? So that's the, the big picture of where we're going. Now, let's talk about the D in DNI for a second, because I have some news for you. The last majority white high school graduating class will be what year? Take a guess. Take a guess. 35. 35 over here? 25. 2025. What year, Bob? Yeah. The D is self-evident. Okay? Now the D is going to mean something different. It's going to mean age diversity. It's going to mean ideological diversity. That's a big issue for me. I'm at a nonpartisan nonprofit that people are self-selected to. They're always the same people. Always the same people. That's a problem. It's not a fun dialogue if we all think the same. It's geographic diversity. And I think it's going to come up uh, also this notion of um, ableness, a variety of diversity. So there's there's actual power in it, and there's multiple dimensions. So I encourage you all as, as professionals in this space to think of diversity in its broadest sense. It's not just based on one's external appearance. Um, as I like to remind my round child how privileged she is, and she doesn't get it, because that's her normal. It was not my normal. I have a very different childhood than hers. And my childhood was amazing. Just hers is so much better, you know? So I guess we can all apply, tap into that. But there's something unique about 
diversity now in the workforce. For the first time in American history, we're, we're only 247 years old as a country. We have five generations in the workforce at the same time. Five. Okay? So anywhere from my parents that are boomers, even when my parents retired three years ago, they're both 70 years old. Their 80-year-old colleagues were the ones wishing them well. They're still working. And they're part of what they call the silent generation. All right, people born between the ages of 1928 and 1945. Then you have the boomers, you have folks like myself, the Gen Xers, you have the millennials, Gen Z, and the alphas. I happen to employ the last three. So I'm Gen X, I have one millennial, I have two Gen Z, and I have four alphas. A whole speech could be written about the alphas. <laughs> Serenity now. Serenity now. I had an alpha issue this morning. I just stopped looking at WhatsApp. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to just let go today. I'm going to let go and let go because I'm going to choke all of them. At any rate, you all can't do it in your reports. All right. Tapping into untapped these different talent pools. Now, this idea of this five generations, I think all of us should be making a run on AARP. They have an active senior program. Um, my father is being recruited more now. He had a very specialized knowledge of uh, naval architecture. Uh, these are former military folks. They, they really care. They're patriotic. They really care about the country. You can't learn the, the complex piping of, of naval aircraft carriers at Georgia Tech and at Carnegie Mellon. Like you may figure out how the pipes work, but will you understand it if you do a valve wrong, you literally blow someone's face off? And that's almost as it's happened, right? You have to have a, a personal experience. And no 25-year-olds can have a personal experience on a naval ship, especially one in war theater. But a 72-year-old would. It's likely he or she would, they were there. They were on the ship. They may have seen this horrible thing happen. And so I, I think two things. One is we're obviously going to be upskilling on the lower end in terms of age. On the high end, these folks that have like aged out, if you will, they left, they maxed out their 401k or whatever uh, tensions actually at their generation. Let's call them back and figure out like, hey, how much would you like to engage? And they negotiate really well now. Debbie just says, you know what? I'll come in when I feel like it. How about that? And they're like, okay, okay, Mr. Carter, we'll take that. Who negotiates like that? Senior scan. <laughs> skill senior scan. So find some skilled seniors among you. And so the diverse perspectives, I um, this is something that's super important to me. I happen to be right of center, okay? And I grew up in a very, very conservative environment. Um, and I've seen the power of just different perspectives as it relates to uh, business issues. Um, started my career at IBM. Uh, we're working in the federal space, you know, with Deloitte, work in state and local space. Our value systems are sometimes collide. Now, do you think we're talking about a mainframe uh, conversion here? How are your values in play? Well, there are end users involved here, okay? And so you have to make it easy for people to, if that's your value set. But not having the conversation will create a solution that doesn't work for the only people who just created it. It would only work for the people who did it. They understand how it works. Well, I was with Deloitte. What does it matter what I think? It matters what those customers think. And so having a diversity of opinion, a diversity of experience, is, I think, key to an inclusive workforce. It's a point out of all, right? You want people to make sure they belong. Well, let's build something they can actually use, right? I used to have a boss at IBM that says, if you start a sentence with, it would be cool if I'm firing. Okay? Because that is not in the business requirements. Would it be cool? No. What does the customer need? 
right? Right? So uh, this idea of, of fostering different perspectives, super, super important. Now, I uh, did not grow up in a hood, okay? Um, I was military, we moved around quite a bit, but uh, the vast majority of my family did. And so I loved hanging out with my um, rougher cousins. Uh, they would teach me like all these new profane words and I would get like access, they had cable at their homes. It's just a very different experience because you know, my, my dad didn't play that at all. Uh, but they were also pretty adept at solving problems. They were basically adults when we were like 10, right? Uh, they just, they just had different experiences. They, they, they talked to adults like they were adult. And like, I couldn't grasp what they were doing and, and how they were doing it. But now I look at them and they're, their lives are reformed. They're better people. They've taken those skills and used them for business. And so they're, they're as innovative as any innovative you would see in, in the Valley. Anyone you would see downtown Indianapolis. Why am I saying that? Ladies and gentlemen, you are talent searchers. Your job is to fish and keep fishing. Sometimes you got to replenish the lake. The question is, where are you fishing? Very efficient. Do you look at uh, West, West Washington Ave and say, you know what? No potential employee of ours are there. There's no way. That's a that's a, a, a pond that's not worthy of fishing. I'm just asking. I don't know if that's true or not. But I, I would ask you all to think about that for a second. Because here's the deal. At 3.8% unemployment, there is no fat. There, there, there's, there's no fat. You can't immigrate your way out of this. There's only 65,000 folks you can get on H-1B. And guess what? The biggest tech firm is going to have the vast majority of it. Why? They have more lawyers. So they're going to win. Intel's going to win every year. Okay? They're going to win every year. My wife is an immigrant from France, and she was on H-1B when we came out of Carnegie Mellon. And when I proposed, her CEO came to my house with a bottle of champagne and just hugged me. I'm like, what's going on? Are you fired? He's like, no, you just opened up another H-1B. <laughs> I said, you owe me more than champagne, dude. <laughs> At least $15,000 in legal fees. My point is we got to love the ones we win. The love the ones that we have. That's what I call the Luther Vandrop strategy, the talent development. Love the ones you're with. We, we can't be with the ones we want. Let's focus on the ones that we have. And there's a lot of people out here that have resident ability, resident ability to solve problems. They're super innovative, and we got to give them a better use case for their talents, a better use case. And you all hold those use cases. The question is, what pathways are you acknowledging here? Which leads me to the next point, this idea of, of innovating the way we build job descriptions. And does it really require a four-year degree, or do you looking for someone that can code? If you live with someone to code, go to a coding school. More importantly, how about you a sponsor folks to go to a coding school? And then you have first right refusal to the, that talent. I see it. Thank you so much, Amy Corner. You can clap if you want. But you're in a war for talent. You can't keep 5.6% every year unless you start doing some different things. You may have gotten lucky year one. Or maybe Jenna's is just an amazing leader. Maybe. Maybe that Midwest nice is so overpowering that 5.6% is normal. I doubt it. I'm not saying I doubt you. I'm just saying I doubt it. So let's think about what are those other strategies. And this idea of building stronger relationships with your customers and your staples, listening to your customer. I like to remind folks in DC, uh, it's a lot of conversation about, oh, the company is woke and this. 
I said, listen, my friend, let's talk about Jamie Dimon for a second. He has billions of dollars in stock options that will vest probably out that he's no longer with us and JP Morgan. Don't you think he knows what his customers will look like 35 years from now? Is it not in his financial interest to make sure he knows what they look like? So if you know where the puck is going, why wouldn't you prepare the goal now? The net is here, come on puck, right? And so this is a data-driven decision. It looks like white pathways, Hispanic pathways, but they're really speaking to a future customer set that you don't see because you don't have geopolitical strategists that work for you. He does. Okay, you know who else does? The U.S. Armed Forces. Some of the best geopolitical strategists in the world. You know the most, the loudest voices about climate change in this country are from the U.S. military. They're not allowed to say it out loud. In the Senate, they can, not in the House. It's not a political thing, ladies and gentlemen. This is about business. This is about cash. The things that we really value in this country. Let's keep it real, okay? <laughs> we serve men, and that's okay to an extent. That's okay, right? You you like what you like, and so if that's if you're serious about it, if you're serious about maximizing your potential, why wouldn't you plan for a future you know what's coming? The demographic cliff is here, so plan for the customers that you'll have, not the ones you have today. All right, and that's listening to your customers. I'm almost done. I'm good. I'm gonna keep going. Creating a culture of empathy. I've, I've never seen in the last 10 years as much talk in private sector circles about empathy as I'm hearing now. And I don't know if that we are uh, more accepting of, of, of people struggling with mental health. Uh, maybe the employee assistance programs are, are showing some, some value, but we are now having all staff meetings about empathy. All staff meetings. Now, what does that mean, really? If you think about where you work, right? And you, well, so sure, your company name, Employee Indeed. Employee Indeed. Employee Indeed wants to keep all your employees correct. The the average cost to replace employees one point five of their salary. Let's say the average salary is seventy thousand. So you're looking at one hundred and thirty five thousand because you didn't create an environment where they felt like they belong, where people didn't care about their life outside of work. Like, what's cheaper for you? What's more effective for you? To be a human or to say, look, you're a revenue-generating entity and you should produce revenue and get out? I'm going to go with door number one. Okay? I'm going to go to door one. It is cheaper to keep. Almost always that's true. More importantly... Think about some of the organizational issues, the unique facets of your organizational culture. That's probably not including onboarding. It's impossible to understand the quirks, why everyone talks to Cheryl when they come in. Why do you do that? Well, if you don't, you'll never get a meeting with the CEO. You wouldn't know that. You have to be in the mix to know that, right? All of us have quirks just like that in our organizations. And so it's incumbent to keep the folks you, you have and add new people there that fit, okay? Great. and move on ethical considerations ethics are big for us at the aspen institute uh it was founded by leaders that were focused on preventing world war three in 1949 as legend has it the gentleman that had a global monopoly on cardboard boxes his name was walter pecky a german-american based in chicago 
uh, wanted to create a space where men could uh, find their common humanity. In 1949, he didn't mean just dudes. Uh, it didn't change until my programs started coming around in the, the late 90s. We were a little more inclusive. They realized this thing called the internet was going to change the world. And if the Institute didn't change its practices, um, you know, this thing wouldn't last. This thing called the Institute. And so now we have pathways for younger talent. But ethics, seeing the world in its greatness and trying to muddle through, acknowledging that I may not win every transaction and that's okay, has been one of the forefront principles of every leadership program that we do. We're going to talk about ethics, drilling it into you that you have an obligation to the greater good, plain and simple. Like we are not on this place where we're just here like a whisper, a whisper of time, three, four, and 10, right? So you have to do some things that are additive to the whole, additive to humanity. And ethics is a way of guiding there. I'm very concerned about the lack of ethics in public education and in business. Um, like there, there is a such thing as right and wrong, ladies and gentlemen. And just because you can doesn't mean you should. Now, what does that mean for tech people, people in tech sector? Isn't tech all about can? This concerns that we have about AI. Uh, in fact, I, I was just with a company two days ago called IntelliHire. And they it's like an AI interface. You tell them what type of job you want. And they start interviewing this metallic, futuristic voice. And they see you, they're, they're looking at your face and your expressions. They can tell if you're not telling the truth. It's, it's, it freaked me out. But I think it'd be really, really cool because it removes bias. Right, you get scored, and then score goes a company line, and then you pick those people you want to be based on score. So I, I, I like the way they're going with it, but <laughs> I was concerned about the, the interface. I was concerning. Now there are other use cases for AI that are very concerning because people are focused on can. Would it be cool if? And not thinking about those broader implications of the technology is something we all have to be thoughtful about. So as I mentioned, I, I do get around the country and the history quite a bit. And uh, you know, my audiences are typically business folks or faith folks, you know, my people. And uh, I've suggested to many people, especially in the US, uh, about this, this notion of quality of life becoming the ultimate measure. Uh, maybe because I'm in my late 40s. Uh, and I know my, my mortality is a, a real thing now. I know I'm not invincible because my knee hurts every morning. Um, like I really care about my day. Like how, how am I feeling? How, what's the weather like? You know, um, what, what are my food options? What are my entertainment options? I have a lot of friends in the Valley, Silicon Valley. Um, they're paid extraordinarily well. They also have some of the highest costs, like just for the living, the commutes, two hour commutes and the Google van each way. I don't care if it's Wi-Fi and coffee and bagels, dude, that sucks. 80% of our adult lives are spent working. I'm a firm believer that time shouldn't suck. Maybe 20%. But 80% of the time is awful? No, I'm, I'm good. That's not how I want to live. I suspect that's how most people don't want to live. So with that in mind, you start thinking about the value proposition of a place like Indianapolis. Right? Now, the average salary of tech workers in the, uh, let's say, the eight top states for attracting them is between 120,000 and 100,000. Can anyone take a guess on what the average tech worker salary here in Indiana is? It's not 100,000. So let's start there. 76,000. 76, Sorry, 78,000. Okay. And two, this is 2021 numbers. 
yet and still compared to the top eight states, you're winning. Why do you think that is? I have a theory. And that theory is that people want the American dream so. They want a house. They want Fido. They have a Fitzgerald. They want a garage. They want a place to spread out a little bit. They want some room. Um, the top eight states for tech workers are unaffordable. They're unaffordable. You'll be living in a, an apartment for a very long time. And with housing prices increasing like that, almost like they're inelastic, they're just going straight up. Affordability becomes a big issue, especially if you want to have a family. If you're a single person, whatever. But, you know, affordability is a big issue. This is why I think Indiana is going to win, ultimately. Places like Indiana. I've said the Midwest in general. Now, let's talk about climate for a second. I know I don't say this out loud because uh, it freaks people out. So if you look at uh, the other called climate belts across the world, it's in the same weather all around the globe along a certain belt, right? About a 2,000-mile band, if you will, all around the Earth. If you're projecting out 50 years, projecting out 50 years to 2073, the most fertile and temperate belt is going to cut right across the Great Lakes region. Okay? So the land that we're on now is going to be worth the same as, say, San Francisco in 50 years. So buy as much as possible for your grandkids. You also have the largest supply of fresh water in the world, in the world, okay? So aside from the climate issues that are coming, affordability is the primary issue right now. Also, this idea of livability, is this a pleasant place to be? Can I still get access to a Broadway show? Can I have some decent food? Uh, that isn't steak, I love steak, by the way. St. Elmo's, the Wago Sliders. Oh my gosh, every night, every night I'm there. Uh, it's not, it's not my At any rate, so you can have a pretty amazing existence here, all right? Now, I've, I've lived in eight different cities in my adult life, eight different cities. And I keep coming back to the Midwest, either the, from Milwaukee to Indianapolis. Anywhere in between, I'll be good, I'm good, I can do that. I've done the East Coast, I've done the West Coast, I have a house in Seattle. I have no intention of ever going back. Rent that bad boy out, let them pay the exorbitant fees. Because I can't afford to live there because of the type of work I like to do. It's typically nonprofit or the faith space. And I just, look, it doesn't pay well, but I'm fulfilled by it. Other people are making the same choice. And I, I declare they will give up $300,000 in, in Silicon Valley to make $150,000 here and have a much better life. So lead with your value proposition. You have a life here. Okay, so we started this conversation about inclusive, um, inclusive tech workforce. This notion of, you know, how do we uh, grow and grow in a way that reflects society? And and I, I just want to end with a story that just happened to me um, about this is last Christmas. We were in Athens, and I uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Greek mythology, and so is my uh, daughter. And so I want to take her there before, you know, she leaves the house. And we're in the, um, the uh, and this place called uh, Delphi, the Oracle Delphi, the ancient Oracle Delphi. And uh, I'm looking at the Temple of Apollo. Now, mind you, I'm thinking of leaving uh, the Astros at this time. In fact, I had already announced it that I was leaving. And I'm in this moment of, of indecision. There's a lot going on, but I'm smiling on the outside, right? And I'm looking at the walls, and they're telling the tour guide is telling the stories about the different walls. You can tell who has been there based on the wall construction. 
So the very top, the remnants of that first wall, all marble stone with crosses on them. So we know these are the Christians. So some 1500 AD, I'm sorry, yeah, 1500 years ago. So they started 500 AD. That's when they took over the site. The next one, you will see lots of uh, mortar, the Roman cement. That's impossible to recreate, by the way. Roman cement, lots of filled stones all over the place. That's the Romans that took over from the ancient Minosians. And then you see that ancient wall from 3,500 years ago. And it's no cement, stones all of irregular size and shape, yet it's still standing. In fact, all the ruins that you'll see in Delphi are from that first period. This is a place of great earthquakes. All It was three tremors while we were there. We were only there for an hour. And we spent three tremors. So imagine what has happened over the last 3,500 years. And so I'm sitting there looking at the wall. I remember I'm a PK. I'm looking for a sermon and everything, right? Something to inspire. And I'm like, wow. The wall where we were forced to conform, the Christian wall, was the first to fall when the earthquake came. Because no, no amount of cement is going to stop an earthquake. Okay? You're going to fall. You're going to crumble. Even if it's marble. The next wall, the, Ro the Roman wall where they said, it doesn't matter what you look like, you're Roman now. Here's a Roman cement. This is the power of our culture. It also fell. But that ancient wall, where they took the time to observe wood floating on the shore, said, huh, earthquakes are just like waves. We probably should build something a little different than what others have done. So they would have found a place for every stone and the differences in the stone, the diversity of the stones will make the wall strong. Because when a wave comes, it moves with the wall. The wall just moves with it. It continues on being a wall. And so I have to ask myself the question I'm going to ask you to ask yourself. What wall am I building? And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know, I'm crying. Just a little bit, little tears, right? And my daughter says, Dad, what's wrong? I said, honey, do you, do you see the sermon in this wall? She's like, you gotta be weird. I don't know what mom. So that's right. I'm gonna be weird. But I left that place fired up about belonging. I am convinced that our differences is what makes us strong. That's the true value proposition of this great place we call the United States of America. Look at this room. Take a minute. Look around this room. Look at the different faces here. That which unites us is in our wallet. We're Americans, ladies and gentlemen. So I thank you all so much for your time. May we all build a society where we belong. Thank you. You're not done with me yet. We have a panel coming. If we can ask the panel to please come to the stage. We're going to pass the mic here. So we have Tiffany, Maurice, and Arwa. Is that correct? Fantastic. Fantastic. So uh, first we start off, I'll hand the mic to Tiffany. We just go down. Just could you briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your organization? Thank you. I'm Tiffany Trustee. I'm an employee of Eli Lilly, but I brought the HR expert to answer those questions today. 
I'm also a champion of diversity, especially for women in STEM and on the board for women in high tech and also a national center for women in information technology for Indiana. So tech three ways. Hello all, my name is Elwa Galawan. I work at Infosys. I lead the diversity, equity, and inclusion for the Midwest. Infosys is an IT consulting company. I'm also on the board of the, uh, with Women in High Tech and Inclusion. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm Maurice Taylor with Eli Lilly and Company, and I am executive director of Talent Attraction. So I'll help keep Tiffany out of trouble. <laughs> well, hold on to that mic. Hold on to that mic. Um, what, uh, how, I should say, how important is tech-related job growth to Eli Lilly? Yeah, I, I think you said it in your in your presentation. Every job that we have with Lilly includes uh, some aspect of technology, and the more that we advance, the more that data becomes uh, super imperative in our day, our jobs. Um, tech is becoming more and more, and so even in functions and areas where you say, would you need a tech background um, or tech knowledge uh, or tech curiosity? The answer for us, I think is yes, you do. Our next question. Um, as most of you know, that Infosys is a technology company. So uh, it's very essential to our growth and success to hire and attract talent young talent and uh, just upskilling them and uh, always continuous learning at Infosys. Becky? Well, of course, at Eli Lilly, I'm a product manager in the digital office. And so technology is at the heart of everything we do. Um, but in the NCWIT and in the women high tech spaces, getting diverse talent and moving those needles that Dennis was talking about earlier has, has been our mission for a long time. And when those needles move, there's still the minority in the workforce. And so having a support network to support them once they get there is another cause to our missions. Great. And we have a new panelist for a while. He just uh, was out for a second. If you can just introduce yourself, your company, and then answer the question, how important is tech-related job growth to your organization? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, my name is Tuwad Butt. I'm over at One America downtown. I run digital strategy and our automation practice. And how important is a tech-related job, tech job growth? Um, I think it's critical in, in my role, but I, I'd like to kind of widen the aperture to say it's, it's not just tech, right? It's across everything because... Um, when I first joined One America, somebody asked me a question like, hey, what's, I came in as head of digital strategy. They were like, what's your digital strategy? And I was like, well, what's the business strategy? Because the digital and technology is in service off the business, is in service off the cash register, so to speak. So um, a lot of what you said actually resonated with me and hopefully we'll, we'll get to solve it. But right. I, think, I think it's critical. Uh, I will make a plug for those of you that haven't seen this. There's a new book that McKinsey just sent out called Rewired. And they have a couple of chapters just on human capital. It's talking about kind of the new digital age, but just the fact that human capital is critical. Um, technology, to a certain extent, sometimes can be commoditized, but people cannot. Great, great. And so I'll let whoever wants to start with this next question go over. We're talking about inclusive practices. What specific inclusive practice have any of you implemented in your organization? 
So one thing that um, you heard uh, Dennis or someone spoke, speak about earlier is that we have um, a skills first initiative at Lilly. And we looked across the enterprise and realized that it really expand our talent pools. We needed to remove the four-year degree requirement and replace it with experience. And so that skills first initiative, we're probably about 100 individuals that we've hired over the last couple of years in the skills first initiative. And it really is a game changer because removing those degree requirements is 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 critical to finding talent, but you also expand your uh, diversity. And you also bring in individuals with backgrounds and, and styles and characteristics that you had never had before. And if you know anything about our company, we're over 146 years, 140 years of of, of uh, dominant culture and to have the mix is really great because when I started at Lilly, you basically, you know, change who you are to be a Lilly employee, right? And we noticed that this new crop, uh, they're not sacrificing, they're not changing who they are, but they are bringing incredible skills uh, to the forefront and to the table. And we've benefited greatly from having um, those individuals with the organization. It's not perfect, we're working through it, we have some challenges, but I think um, it's been beneficial to the to the enterprise. Great, just a really quick aside, uh, less than 25% of the population every year pursues post-secondary credential, whatever it is, university, trade school, you name it. And so the fact that you all are figuring out how to get to the other 75%, I think is remarkable given uh, the history of the organization. So kudos to Elan and Arwen. Inclusive practice. Yeah, I echo that uh, because at Infosys, we really, uh, Infosys is authentically a uh, uh, commitment to inclusion because uh, in, in uh, and believing of the um, once we have like inclusive environment, starting from the leadership, uh, it's gonna change the whole environment for the company. So I put that, and uh, and I hope that we're working on the same mission as uh, Eli Lilly and other companies in Indianapolis and in the Midwest. So I have the pleasure of being a part of the Skills First Initiative, and uh, because of the apprenticeship and the community-mindedness that John Falls put in me a long time ago from 1150 Academy. I went to the Academy because I believed in that mission that he and Scott had, and I was a teacher there because they needed a girl <laughs> in Navity. So I looked around and said, this is a great mission, but you really, you need a woman here. Um, I'll be one of your teachers and um, help get this started. I was deeply invested in the apprenticeship but we didn't have a place to put them when they graduated. All the big companies didn't need our graduates. They had people knocking down their door with degrees. And the small and mid-sized companies didn't have the infrastructure that we needed to support these new, unique graduates. So when Lily and others opened their doors for apprenticeships, um, I was really excited to help. I mean, just to... And one, one strategy we are undertaking is to kind of lower the barriers, if you will. Um, I personally am bringing in non-technology people into our digital strategy automation practices because with some of the new tooling, low-code, no-code environments, you don't need to be an old school 
program with all respect to Fortran and the Cobalt. <laughs> I, I think don't miss it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and not necessarily what America, but in a previous company I was with, one of the best programmers on my team was actually a history major. Just because that diversity of thought and diversity of ideas, um, that's what we need. We need people. It's kind of an idea of the world, right? Um, yes, it just helps to kind of bring those people, marry them into the team with technologists, but you don't necessarily need to be a technology person anymore to have an impact. So, you know, bringing in an inclusive practice to an existing organization, perhaps one is, that's more than half of the age of our country, I wonder, uh, to the extent you can't say out loud, like, what are some of the challenges that, um, that were part of that, uh, that you experienced, maybe some resistance or not? Uh, it has to be part of the culture, and it has to be supported wholeheartedly by your leadership. Um, there's a concept of check the box, DEI. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Where uh, someone wants to get a promotion, they know they have to have DEI to get it, so they sponsor something, and you can tell their heart's not in it. Um, when that happens, the culture breaks down and the support's not there. It has to be real. I think there's several things. I'll be brief, but um, I think that people believe that to get work done, you have to do it like you've always done it in the past. And especially in an environment where we have this notion of the lily way, right? And when you have people coming in with a different perspective, asking different questions, um, not conforming to the to the to the norms in terms of um, how they look and how they show up every day. I think that presents um, huge challenges. Um, and we've had to really push with our managers and supervisors and things like things of that nature. We started this right at the beginning of what I call our, our racial justice initiative, right at the, uh, after the George Floyd murder. And so people with really good hearts, right, came to the table and said, we want to support, we want to do the right things. But it, it actually takes even more than a good heart, right? And it, it takes open-mindedness because under stress, under pressure, you're gonna to resort to the things that got you there. And it might not be as inclusive as you think when you think about the audience that you're, you're, you're new employee or your new employees. And so um, it's really been um, a, quite a bit of a swim upstream for those in the organization that believe that this is, is great. We do have individuals in the company who are advocates and supportive supportive of this of these efforts but um we we do have a, a great deal of work and if you're thinking about bringing an initiative into your organization um, um you need a really strong support system for individuals that you bring in and you really need the right supervisors or expectations from the wrong supervisors to do the right thing i'm going to add that uh, the challenges are the same especially in a global companies uh there are always individuals that they don't have the mindset to adapt to the culture of the company. So uh, we did have uh, this, and I'm sure all, every company might uh, face this challenge of, uh, we do have the initiatives, we do have the support, but some people just choose to um, not adapt to the new culture or to just stick to uh, same mindset maybe. Um, we try our best. We uh, we give support. We give mentorship. But uh, I hope one day that uh, people just make sure and 
think how um, amazing to shift this mindset to be open-minded to um, other cultures and uh, yeah. I'll just add to, it needs to be reflected in the culture. I think we can do more damage if we lead with diversity just for diversity's sake, because uh -oh. people see that. And it has to be almost an after the fact saying, hey, part of our success was because we had people from you know different points of view. And I think something else you mentioned was we need to get out of this model where diversity is just gender and color of the skin. And it's easier said than done, but the diversity of experience diversity of ideas, those kinds of things. I mean, that are very important too. Um, but again, if we have to be very careful. I've, I've seen examples where if you leave with it too strong, you're actually doing it a disservice. Yeah. Well, uh, glad you brought that point up because I'm, I'm very interested to hear from the panel. Uh, how have, or have you tied uh, inclusion initiatives to the bottom line of the organization in terms of metrics? Yeah, do you have any proof that is driving revenue? Uh, any anything to add on, on that particular uh, idea? I'll just start on this end. Um, we haven't yet, because again, back to my last point, we don't want to put too much pressure on it. I think it, it's you got to give it some room. You got to let it be organic. Um, I think it's hard to say because we did this here that you know we're we're also 145 year old company, but you got to give these programs a little bit of time to kind of say, how do I make that linkage to the cash register? Um, we are doing also initiatives in our distribution network, right? Because it's not just diversity in the home office or in corporate, but it's also in your distributors, your partners, your suppliers, and center of those things. Metrics is a big part of uh, every organization. I know women in high tech, uh, when I was on the board a decade ago, the metrics um, were much smaller and we were well balanced. And then as we scaled and I rejoined the board years later, um, the metrics were different and we had some actions to take. We, we aspire to uh, mirror the community that we serve. So we have to understand the women working in tech in Indiana, understand their makeup and serve all of them. Uh, at NCWIT, um, I've got a bunch of materials with me, but my favorite piece of material is by the numbers. And it just goes through the nominal disparity of women in computing. And as we all know, we develop for every person and we can't do that without diverse thought. Yeah, I noticed that because we are on the same board that uh, the diverse board adding a lot of uh, valuable points and actions and having the awareness of what's missing and talking about it and taking actions. Um, at Infosys, we do have, uh, um, because we really care about the performance management and skill development. So we do have internal uh, free, easy access to all employees to keep building and keep learning. Um, and it's helping to just see this dashboard of like, okay, I'm taking this. This is assigned to me. This is what I'm learning. So always like uh, knowledge is is the key. I always say. So keep learning, keep educating yourself, um, keep the awareness going, and uh, taking action and speaking about it. Not just one uh, thought is the group thoughts of uh, having a mindset. Um, Open-minded people helps a lot. 
Yeah, um, we have some metrics, but in terms of ROI, I, I just want you to think about something, right? Over the last 15 to 20 years, uh, many large organizations and small organizations have started to out, you know started to outsource uh, different aspects of the work that was not strategic. Well, what what happened is that if you don't check, the cost of that outsourcing has increased tremendously. Then you did that at some point strategically to say, oh, that's probably going to be a better option than hiring a bunch of people, leading a department, dealing with personnel, HR issues. But if you if you check today you'll see outsourcing has increased significantly. And actually, when you think about what you probably considered as something that you can outsource, may over the years have, made, may have become a valuable asset that you want to control, that you want to have in-house. And so I would just say, from a, just a real quick ROI, look at what you've outsourced. Look at who's doing work for you that may not work for your company and think about um, an opportunity to hire and bring on the talent that we're talking about to the organization, because there might be a, a instant savings that um, pays for the programming um, over quickly. So, uh, or broader concerns like national security. Yeah, exactly. Thinking about exactly. pharmaceuticals during yeah. COVID, and you learned that most of the supply chains outside the U.S. were also dealing with COVID. So, if you make a choice, your kid or my kid, this could be my kid. I mean, I don't care what the contract says. So, I mean, a major issue, how long does it take to rebuild an infrastructure to build pharmaceuticals? 15 years. We over-indexed for translation, so my bad. <laughs> Great, so we're going to ask two more questions before we uh, open it up to, to audience questions. Um, what's your big, your big idea that's not being done now with respect to your company and inclusion? What's like if you if you were the, the master of the universe and you wanted to change Eli Lilly or insert name of your company, what would you do that you're not doing right now, and why? Yeah. So so with our long tradition, we also have a very strong tradition at recruiting at particular campuses, right? So obviously IU Purdue we're right there. We recruit for more than seven or eight functions. I think at Purdue even ten functions at IU Purdue. Then we have a host of other colleges. Uh, that we recruited. My big idea is to create some platform where it's, there's is university agnostic, right? Anyone can apply, anyone can consider, and then we have the uses of AI and other things to evaluate skill set and things of that nature. So that when we wake up tomorrow, you know, 50% of our new employees are not from one university or two universities or three, but we've 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 incorporated this diversity across the spectrum beyond just four-year traditional colleges, but community college and GCOs, and we really identify um, a diverse talent pool across a wide spectrum of universities and institutions. That's my, it'll never happen, but that's my idea. Did the point staff hear that? Like, that sounds like a great value to customers there. Anyhow. <laughs> yeah, uh, to not stick only to universities or just people who have a bachelor degree. Uh, I'm so glad that Infosys now hires uh, people who just finished their associate. They don't have to wait till they finish their bachelor. But I do hope that um, there are a lot of diverse talent in high school. And they know that this is the way, this is the path we want to take. I hope we see companies that give opportunities to these students. So, just because um, most of the technology companies, they do train, they do have training programs. 
So why not just wait till them to finish? They can start working and finish their education at the same time. Um, when it when it comes to computing in in the younger um, younger kids, I, I like to help the Vex Robotics State Championship, and I get to go and I see mostly boys, and then I see the all girl teams, and they're awesome. And then when I see the one girl on the team with the with the mixed teams, she's always doing documentation. No, she's not driving. She's not coding. She's writing, making the posters. And oh man, that gets me. But the all-girl teams is the chance that they have to drive, that they have to code. And it, my big ask, my big wish is we have to normalize this. They can't drop out. We need them. We need their diversity and thought. And it, there was a time when they belonged and it turned somewhere around middle school and high school. And so in my long years of, of working on this, moving the needle, uh, I keep going back and back and back and trying to find where does this happen? Why does this happen? And what can we do about it? I suppose my big idea would be to kind of address the no job without experience, no experience without a job. So the idea would be to almost make a clearinghouse across companies where you can actually externalize non-confidential projects and let General, call it the general public, call it academia, bring teams together across different companies, different colleges, different areas to say, let's crowdsource some of these ideas that are not mission critical, that don't have confidential stuff. There's a lot of commodity things all our companies do. These projects are kept internal. I think they kind of give people ideas, give students that are in, you know, in school right now an opportunity to actually get some experience, crowdsource those things. They're almost kind of like extended hackathons if you will, right? And let them come together. But the ideas are seeded from groups of companies that are real ideas, real challenges that we face today. Right, great. So let's just transition to audience questions. Um, let's, we have time for at least five to six of them. So let's see some hands and we'll run out of mic out to you. Who wants to go first? Yes, ma'am. What's that? Thank you. Um, my question is, what advice would you give to organizations that already kind of provide services that you all are providing now in-house? So we're working to get our students, our talent connected with you all, but it's getting a little bit more difficult because of increases or internal programs or things of that nature. So. What would you propose that we do to kind of have the all-inclusive model so our students who aren't your typical talent are still being reviewed? I'll just give a quick answer and pass it on. I, th I think vocabulary is important, so speak our language, right? So I think when you approach us, you got to speak, whether you like it or not, corporate speak, right? Why is this important? Why should you take the call? What's the business case, right? And I think those purposeful partnerships that you and I were talking about just last week with IWIT and Women in High Tech um, are important. We're all here for a reason. Most of those reasons align very, very closely. And like you said, um, we're all here. We all want to make this happen. We're not fighting each other, fighting for each other's resources. We all want to work towards the same goal. 
So finding those strategic partnerships where you can do something bigger than you and your own organization is, is where I'm trying to focus. Yeah, the partnerships, we can start with partnerships uh, and also companies can host and do tour for these students, introduce them, let them make connection at early before graduation. And I think it will help them uh, know like shadowing the job, like InfoStreet will host uh, events for uh, high, high school students or just from students from Ivy Tech as Ariel knows. So it helps them. But we have to work all together. Like uh, we can't just use one hand. We have to use both hands. So uh, yeah. Wow, there are several things I believe. So when as my role in talent attraction, I always tell individuals that I'm not hiring, I'm not recruiting you. I may be recruiting you for today, but I may be recruiting you for tomorrow for that next job. And so I think it's incumbent upon people who are interested in working for a specific company to really think about, is it the right next job or maybe it's the job after that? And so there are things that you can take advantage of, students can take advantage of, everything that we've heard our other panelists say would be those things um, to prepare. And then the other thing I'd like to add is that people are not as diligent as you'd like in the whole application technology space because they always say, hey Maurice, I applied for a job, it got turned down and guess Lily doesn't like me. I'm like, no. I said, you need to apply for multiple jobs, right? You need to continue to look and apply and be savvy and look at your your resume as a template, right? To adjust it based on the skills that you bring may be more applicable to one job, but may not be as directly applicable to another job. And so you have to be able to adjust and make your resume and your, your story change, not because you're not being honest, but because there are things that someone might have done, you might have done that might not be pertinent for one particular role, but might be more um, um, applicable to another role. And so there's a variety of things that we could talk about in this space. So, um, so feel free to hit me up later. Yeah. Thank you. Do not take your personal. Well, can I just build on your point? Yeah. This, this is something that we've dealt with right now, which is we can spend three, six months looking for someone, or we can spend three, six months investing in someone and we'll have that person at the end of it. So I think your point about back to where the puck is going, I think have the conversation with us also, not what you need today, but what will you need in six to 12 months based on what, where the business plan is going. And loving the ones you're with. <laughs> Good afternoon. Um, girls who code, and Accenture before COVID did research. And that research showed that 50% of women by the age of 35 are leaving tech due to non-inclusive cultures. That wasn't even disaggregated by color. We also know through research recently done with reboot representation, haha, I'm here, um, that we're seeing that the retention of women, of especially Black, Latina, and Native American women, down. So we're investing a lot of money and recruiting, but we're not retaining that talent. So it's important to have a holistic strategy, not just we're gonna hire, right? Because you can't just hire, and then you could create a permanent underclass if you don't emphasize the fact that there has to be more, there has to be retention. And also we know that when you look up, when you see us, you can be us. 
If you look up and there's no one who looks like you, do you want to stay? So my question for you is, as part of this, what is retention? If, do you have a holistic strategy when it comes to recruitment and retention? I think one of the most important things as leaders for each one of us is the career pathing of our teams, right? And that idea where it requires some self-reflection and say, are you spending 30, 40, maybe even 50% of your time as you get higher up in the organization, just on human capital needs to your point. Um, but career passing and talking to people about what their journey is and where do they want to go, but also exposing them to ideas. You know, we, we have a rotational program where we take people and it's not just for high potentials, it's for everyone. So some organizations I've seen in the past, it's just the hypos to get rotated. Um, those are just the hypos that have kind of floated to the top. There's a lot of people underneath there that have given the right opportunities. So I think you have to be blind to the, um, you know, where people fit in the hierarchy from a, from a performance perspective, and let other people rotate as well. So I mean, that's those are a couple of things we're we're doing right now. I'm going to let you talk about all of the wonderful <laughs> benefits I've had from an employee standpoint uh, from the HR department. So the most pivotal thing that we've ever done in DEI is something called a women's journey. And that take, took place about eight or nine years ago, where we actually looked at what things, what what barriers were preventing women from getting to the top of the organization. And the the the, the data was both we did both qualitative, quantitative, and spent a ton of money on that. And the reason it's pivotal is that we subsequently had journeys for other diverse populations, including um, African, Black, African-American, Latino, Hispanic. We, we're now on our disability journey right now, as well as LGBTQ. And this is not just an exercise of just DEI and checking the box. Our executive committee members um, made um, took those action steps and implemented it within the organization. So if you check, our board, uh, our women representation exceeds industry average. Our executive committee, which is the top tier team, exceeds industry industry averages. Our representation within the organization from entry level on up um, exceeds industry representation. And so that study where we had a committed CEO who's committed and said we're going to make a change um, um, really made the difference. And so we could talk, Tiffany and I could talk all day and night about um, the, the journey of our women um, at Eli Living Company, but um, certainly it's it's documented and um, would love to talk to you about it. More questions. Let's go on this side of the column if we can. <laughs> yes, right here. I see in the back here. Malik is running with the mic. Thank you, Malik. I just add while you're walking, those journeys are unfiltered, raw, and published in, inside of Lily, and they're so powerful. Yeah, that's a follow-up question on that. So do you interview women and they talk like this in a very free-form fashion, or how does it work actually? Yeah, um, interview, uh, uh, um, and, and then we do interviews that are not, so anonymous interviews. Um, and then we had a third-party firm put those um, those interviews together and came out with some really um, thematic quotes and and, rep and and just put that in front of our senior leaders 
Um, and they were very, very, very uh, powerful. And it just made the leader say, we, we need to change, we need to do better in that space. And so it was that, um, that thought provoking. I have a couple questions. And sorry, I am cold. The first is, if you're an ethical company, why do you have a hackathon? Just to clarify, hackathon is not referencing hacking the company. It's referencing getting people together in a fixed period of time and clearing their schedule so it's not an edge of the desk exercise, but giving them a very compressed time to solve a solution. So the name, the term is a little misleading. You're not hacking anything. More, more so, you're hacking the idea, so to speak. To go back to the origins of whatever, which I think most people think of hacking a company or security or privacy, but it's actually how do you hack an idea? Does that, does that answer your question? That's the same answer. Absolutely. Um, it's it's not about doing something unethical at all. It's about bringing together a bunch of nerds. And then one guy stands on the stage and says, hey, for 48 hours, we're going to solve this problem. Are you ready? They tell us the problem. And then we form little groups with our laptops and we don't sleep for two days. And we stand up on stage and present a really quick, packed together idea to solve this great community problem. After a lot of Mountain Dew. Yeah, not a lot of Mountain Dew. Espresso shots, all of that. Yeah, it is like a bad idea. Yes, I've seen Recycle question. And if you're thinking for diversity, which is what I'm thinking your D word stands for, and you're wanting more women in the role, you can't make a person desire a career in tech if that's not what they're wanting. Um, are you offering training at 1150 Academy or any of these other tech places to older women as well? Can you uh, can you introduce yourself to Ariel from Iwit? <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> she asked the question earlier. There there are many organizations out there that. If you want to change careers and you want to get into this industry, there's there's funds and there's there's programs for you, yeah. And then the lady over there that mentioned the question or that um, women of color are not staying in tech, is that because they chose? Or do you know the answer? There's a lot of answers. Um, and again, the, the NCWIT organization that I'm with has an army of minions, two armies of minions. One are social um, scientists that study the root cause of the uh, gender bias at, at every level, all the way from kindergarten up to the C-suite. And then the other army are people like me that uh, are spread across the nation, and we want to hear those reports and go home and do something about it. Um, that dropping out of the workforce has always been a problem. And we've heard many reasons because of it. It could be family. 
It could be a change in dynamics. It could be you're tired of fighting. You're tired of being the only. You're tired of trying to fit in. And um, it's just exhausting. And the older you get, the harder it gets. And there's no one answer. And then post-COVID, you had the great resignation. And we were no different. We, we continued to drop out because of many, many, many factors. Just want to add to that. Um, there's, we can reframe that as well, right? So there is definitely address why women are perhaps retention rates are lower. But if you say people have their valid reasons for doing so, the other thing we're looking at is on ramps back in, right? So people may have very legitimate reasons. They've chosen their own reasons to be out of the workforce for five, seven, ten years. But how can we build those on ramps to get back in? To the workforce as well. So that's another area where, yes, I think there's lots of people looking at the reasons why people are leaving, but if you accept that as it is to say, hey, let's also address, make it easy to get back in. Sure. Yeah, first of all, thanks to this and the Tech Point team for putting this together today and to the panel. Uh, my name is Noel, and uh, my question is really to the panel around the Mission 41K and if you look at it as kind of a value chain of attracting talent, developing talent, and then placing talent and opportunities, where do you see kind of either the bottleneck in that value chain, or where would you double down your investment if you were to really kind of enable Mission 41K? Just curious to get your take on that. It doesn't have to be in that aspect of maybe partnerships or wherever you think it would be the real double down uh, to, to really enable Mission 41K. Thanks. I would um, think of the opportunity as a startup. What would a startup do? Startup would say the first thing on the whiteboard would be addressable market. So I think rather than focusing on training people and walking them through the pipeline, I would jump right to the end and say, what is my customer need? You talk a lot about customers. So what is your customer need? What's the addressable market? Then work back from there to say, what can I do today to do that? I think some of the pipelines today are focused more on Let's get people, you know, training on certain skills, then go find out where we can place them. I think this this part there's ample opportunity for partnership to say, hey, one America, hey, if it says, hey, Eli Lilly, in 12, 24, 36 months, what kind of needs will you have? And then let's define that as your address in the market, work back from there. No, we all are. Might not address your full question, but I'll, I'll give some thought, um, some comments. You know, I, I had a meeting with uh, some individuals from the university today, and the one thing I was telling them, I said, "Hey, it's great that you're trying to graduate students, right?" I said, "But think about this. Think about students acquiring those skills that you talk about after their second year." and providing a pathway to say you're complete, maybe it's an associate's degree, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just here's a certification that you've acquired these skills that a company can use. And so I was telling the, the individuals that maybe we need to think about programs that might be one year, one year at Indiana University, one year at Indiana University of Indianapolis, where you're giving up those skills that we want for the jobs that we have. And then after that, let us do our own development to help them understand our industry and our business. And so 
I think it's a little bit of uh, the first couple of stages of the of the pipeline, right? Of getting them interested, but also um, building on 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 this point on the right skills. So I, I think the one thing that I, I told them is that career counselors. When I talk to college students about what advice they're getting from career counselors, is outdated information. I wish they could take retirees like you from Lilly and individuals like that, and you all would be those individuals that would help these college students at either Ivy Tech or various places understand how to um, pursue a career, pursue a job, because it's going to give them really direct application on what a company looks for. Uh, really sounds like your idea of investing in a coding uh, school, right? <laughs> I, I do want to address one thing, and I don't it gets often overlooked, but it's critical success. I think part of the curriculum, no matter how technical it is, should be the dark art of office politics. Nice. I think no matter, unless you're sitting in a closed room and only doing talking to a computer, you're going to be talking to somebody else. And I think I've seen people that have excellent skills, but they can't navigate the office environment. So I think that's critical to me. Great, great. Uh, we're going to stop the audience questions, sir, because I want to give our, uh, the state panelists an opportunity to kind of give a closing statement, if you will. Um, I'll, I'll start with my give you also time to, to thank. Um, solutions abound. I, I think back to a conversation I had with Skillstar, the company I, I mentioned earlier. They, they've had this amazing solution for upskilling uh, military personnel, these uh, young men and women. They're just doing one term of service for three to four years. The last year is meant to be transition. You get GI Bill, uh, and they can actually spend half their time upskilling to whatever they're going to do post-military. I said, well, that's great. You have this amazing um, uh, hybrid uh, learning environment. What about uh, underestimated talent pools? Uh, kids that are, you know, failed STEM majors, that are studying econ or poli sci and still have the ability to just, you know, they couldn't get past inorganic chemistry. I know I couldn't, right? Um, doesn't mean that you're not a smart person, doesn't mean you're not eligible. And given the massive job gaps, and especially in tech space, we need as many horses as we can get. So let's figure out a different pathway. Well, guess what? We are now working with HBCUs and Hispanic serving institutions across the American South the same program they were doing for military and still doing for military personnel are now available to young people on campuses. So we get a bachelor's degree plus, plus this other online certification that employees are recognizing and they're having the same job opportunities as the few kids are engineering. So that's just a really quick example of what's possible. So I want you all, my challenge to you all to think about what you already have in your pocket and maybe you're using that pocket nice in a different way to get you to a better solution. So let's start with uh, whoever has Mike. Okay, here we go. What was, what was the question? This is your advice, your closing statement, advice to... Uh, uh, yeah, I'll keep it simple. I think most things in life to me that, that I've seen is comes down to communication. So let's just have a conversation. I think people can learn from each other. It's not like information is flowing you know, in one direction. So I just find, I think, sit down, let's... let's Share the challenges. Both sides have challenges. What are the opportunities? 
um, and have a conversation. I don't think there's one solution that, that fits all. It's been my experience. Thank you. Uh, I came here today as um, an employee of Eli Lilly, a, a hardcoreer that loves the indie tech community and a supporter of women in STEM. If you know a little girl that has aspirations in growing up to be a programmer, I've got some materials for you. All she has to do is go to a website and register to apply for an award. After that, we can meet her, we can support her, and we can encourage her to keep going with scholarships, activities, uh, everything I could throw at her to keep her in. And if you know a woman working in STEM that feels like she's alone and she needs that support network, so she's not one of the dropout statistics, pointer towards women in high tech. And again, we would love to support her. Uh, the statement that I would like to share is uh, inclusivity in tech starts with the commitment to diversity. When we expanded our um, into the skills first arena, um, one of the biggest barriers that some of our um, new hires had was this, this notion of the imposter syndrome, right? They're in a, now they're in an organization individuals with MD, PhD, a variety of degrees, people who travel across the world on their vacation. And then we have individuals that we brought in that's never been out of Marion County, to be perfect, perfectly honest with you. And so what I, my, my advice is let's help build confidence in individuals that they deserve to be at the table. When we actually bring groups together, and I did this about four or five years ago, uh, I brought all our Latino leaders in the city together. And I said, we have all these jobs, but we aren't getting applicants from your community. And, that, and I said, why? And one of the comments that came from that discussion is that our, our constituents, our community, they don't think they can work at Lilly. They don't think there's jobs at Lilly for them. And, um, and so what you can do is help people understand that all these great companies in the city, all these great organizations, that they, they belong, people belong, they belong there, and they should not give up and they should try to um, interview, try to seek employment. Might not be the next job, but it could be the job after the next job. But please be encouraging to those uh, those communities. Great. Please give this panel a hand. Thank you all so much.